Welcome to The Way Church. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For sermon notes, service times, and more information, check us out online at thewaychurchva.com. Now let's join Pastor Matt Rothy with this week's message. This morning, we read our sermon lesson, which is going to be based on the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 3, the first six verses. Luke chapter 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysianus, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. The word of the Lord came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all the people will see God's salvation. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. The Status Game is a recent book that was written by the British author and long-form journalist Will Storr. Although since he's British, he pronounces the title of his book The Status Game. That's really near here nor there. But in a recent interview, Will Storr summarized the, the significance, really the severity of status and the status games that we play in our lives when he said this. He said, we often think of status exclusively in terms of wealth. However, status is actually at play everywhere, in every situation where we get the feeling of being valued or being ever so slightly elevated relative to others. He went on, with examples saying, we play status games in being famous or knowing someone famous, getting a laugh after telling a joke, getting a good grade, getting likes on social media posts, winning a video game, cooking a tasty meal, being good looking, having inside knowledge, sharing a good recommendation. The universal desire for status greatly influences our culture as well as our own behavior. Status is in play everywhere. So if the author's correct, what status games are you playing? Maybe specifically, where is status, if it's everywhere, in your Christmas preparation? We want the house to be just so for our out-of-town guests. We want everyone to recognize us for our thoughtfulness with the gifts that we give. 
Maybe we want to be invited to this or that holiday party. And if we're not the party-going types, maybe then, maybe, maybe we like to brag just on how cozy our nights at home are. We want to have the ugliest sweater, the brightest lights. We want our kids to experience an ideal Christmas. And this blows my mind, but did you know parents pay a lot of money just so that their kids get a picture with the most realistic Santa? You're probably sitting there thinking, (laughs) Pastor Matt, please. I am not into such a commercial Christmas. I am all about keeping Christ in my Christmas. Do you see what you're doing? You're taking your spiritualness, your Christian faith, and you're playing a status game with it. You're saying that my Christian Christmasing makes me superior to others. Status is everywhere. And the author, Will Stewart, outlines in his book that, well, there's good reason for this. And maybe despite all of our less than ideal motives, it is good for us because after all, status gives people an overall better sense of well-being. It has effects on our relational health, our physical health, our financial health. So we want to elevate our status. We play games everywhere to do it. If that's true, then, what do you do with this? What do you do with the fact that you come to church on a Sunday morning and you're part of a Christmas Advent series that is called A Humble Christmas? What do you do with this? What do you do with a scripture lesson that is about a man who does not care about status? John the Baptist, who wears camel fur, eats locusts and honey, and goes off into the wilderness. What do you do with his message that's about repentance? I mean, there is no status in repentance. If status is elevating ourselves, Well, repentance is humiliating ourselves. Repentance, well, it stirs feelings of remorse or regret. It doesn't sound like well-being. In his book, The Status Game, he actually outlines that the opposite of status is in fact Humiliation. And in so many ways, we associate humiliation with repentance. Clinicians have nothing good to say about humiliation. They say it it brings about fear, anxiety, stress, violence, depression. So what do you do with this? What do you do with a sermon from John the Baptist about repentance that feels like it's leading to humiliation? Or could it be that that's not where repentance leads? Humiliation, could it not lead to, well, repentance, could it not lead to humiliation? Could it, could it actually lead to something that is 
good for you. If Stannis is everywhere in life, scripture is rife with calls to repentance. It is everywhere. It is in both of our lessons for today. In Malachi, you hear God calling his people to repentance. In Philippians, you hear Paul saying that is his prayer for everybody, that they get called back to a life of repentance. If if it's everywhere in scripture and it's the main message of Paul's message, what do we do with it? Well, we started out our lesson today and well, perhaps you noticed that there was a lot of names at the beginning of the lesson. Names about, well, people maybe we don't know a whole lot about. We saw in there Tiberius, Caesar, Pontius Pilate, Herod, Philip, Licinius. And maybe you thought as we read through the beginning of this lesson that those are verses that we'll just kind of throw away, that they just kind of give us context. Yes, we know this actually happened in a place. But think for a moment about what the Holy Spirit is doing through Scripture. He's not only giving you context for this lesson, he's giving you a contrast. A contrast between the life cycle of status and humiliation compared to really a salvific life cycle of confession and absolution. Because no one wants to admit they're wrong. It's part of the human experience. No one, no one jumps at an opportunity to say sorry. And if you're at any holiday parties this year, I guarantee you when you're making small talk with people next to you, no one's going to ask you if you want to repent or if you've repented of anything lately. It's not something that really happens all that often. Except maybe it's a concept we talk about at church, right? And so before we get going, let me maybe repent about something about repentance. And it's this, that well, pastors don't much like to repent either. This past week, I was in my small group. Some of you guys know that I'm in a small group with other pastors. And one of the pastors was leading us through a a group of Psalms. And there we looked at Psalm chapter four, and we read this, verse four. Tremble and do not sin. When you're on your bed, search your heart and be silent. The leader of the devotion and the study asked a probing question. Why do you have trouble being silent? And after some silence, someone answered, it's because... When our hearts and our lives are silent, we are confronted with what's on our heart. We're confronted with stuff that's there and not good, stuff that we should say sorry for, and stuff that's sin. And we need to repent even even if we don't like it. And so that's what we have here as we kick off Luke chapter 3, we have the apostle placing us firmly in the context of real people, but, but not just so that we know this really happened, but so he could contrast something going on in our lives and theirs, this vicious life cycle of status games that result in humiliation and comparing it to, well, 
a salvific lifestyle of repentance that leads to something better. Can I show you what Luke is doing? Here's a group of names, and he's talking to a group of people who, well, they put a lot of pride in their nationalism. They sought status through being a Jewish nation and having the importance of all of that that goes with that. What he's saying at the beginning of Luke chapter three is, is look, you don't even have your own nation. You are under the rule of a Roman emperor, Tiberius Caesar. Furthermore, you're under the rule of four different governors that all compete for rule and power with one another. How's that working out for you? How's the status game of nationalism working out for you? He doesn't stop there. He, he goes one step further and he points out the fact that, well, the high priesthood, that office, it, it actually was divided. The power was, was being held by two different people, Annas and Caiaphas, and that office, for all the good that it was supposed to do for people spiritually, it's actually the office from which the crucifixion was caused. And so he asks, status, by your religiosity or your nationalism, how's that working out for you? And that's what the Holy Spirit is doing through this sermon here at the very beginning. Yeah, I make light, maybe, maybe even belittled the status games that we play by, by talking about wanting to have the ugliest sweater or the brightest lights because they're much more spiritually significant status games that we play. And perhaps more important than asking, what games are you playing? We should be asking ourselves, how's that working out for you? How's that working out for you as you sit silently before the Lord? Does it, cause you to repent to him? Or does it not? What Luke is doing here at the beginning of chapter three is not just giving us context into what is going on with worldly rulers and worldly people looking for and playing status games through that. No, what he's doing is, is contrasting the two things that we're looking at, the life, the vicious life cycle of, of playing status games and and the humiliation that often falls with that, and repentance, confession, and the absolution that goes with that. He's contrasting that because he's contrasting the rule of these men with the rule of the Savior who's coming in and ruling in people's hearts and lives through the message of the gospel, a message of forgiveness of sins. And he's making this point unmistakably clear for you, that humiliation, well, that's not the result of repentance. No, your repentance does not result in, in humiliation. Rather, what he wants you to see clearly is that repentance results in something much greater. Not humiliation, but God's salvation. Let's look at the sermon that John the Baptist preaches to these people. He started out preaching this 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 message of repentance saying this, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. It might be easy at this point to, to jump on that and, and think about the message of repentance and, and, well, that it's just another arena in which we play a status game, that, that we see who can make 
the straightest path for the Lord, that who can best and most piously, most sincerely prepare a way for him. It might be easy to trick ourselves into thinking that, well, repentance is, is something that we need to do for God in order to get God. That's a gift that we give to him. But listen to what follows. Quoting Isaiah says, every valley shall be filled, every, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. Here's the truth. While we are given the command to prepare our hearts, prepare the way for the Lord, our God knows our hearts. He knows that in spite of our best efforts, we create potholes throughout our lives. That when it comes to painting the lines on the road, they're not straight. The roads aren't smooth. We have highs and lows. We have mountains and valleys because of sinful choices that we make. And so you notice he doesn't portray God's people doing this, but he portrays it being done. He portrays it being done for them. Every valley filled in, every mountain made low, every crooked road being made straight. Why? Because when God sends the Lord, his son to come, he sends them not only just to come into our lives, but to be the way maker who makes the path to come into our lives. And that's just it. The, the mistake that we so often make is thinking that repentance is, is something that we do for God, something that we give to God in order to get God good with us. But what all of John's message and all of his ministry and all of scripture points out is that this repentance is something that is spirit wrought, that is brought about by the faith that he's given us. It's not the gift that we give to God. It's the gift that he gives to us and through it, he gives us the most incredible gift of all, salvation that is for all people. How should we put repentance concretely? We've kind of been talking about it as this abstract idea, but, but what does it look like in our lives? Or our series or our weekly theme is called Humble People, what it really is, is, is not humiliation, but a, but a humble and heartfelt confession that we erect monuments, we collect trophies of status throughout our lives, and, and these are, in fact, things that, that separate us from God. These are sins. Often I, I use kind of this, like, analogy or illustration, maybe this, this I guess, like, full-body illustration to demonstrate what repentance is. Say this is the cross and, and this is Christ, right? This is walking a straight path towards him. If you've been in foundations, you've maybe seen me do this before where this is the way we should go, but so often we turn and we walk in the opposite direction. So what is repentance concretely? What does it look like in our lives? Well, it is us stopping and by the word of God, recognizing that we're going down a path, we're going in a direction that is sinful, that is away from God, that it is in a way he doesn't want us to go. 
And so God's word gets us to stop the Holy Spirit that is ours through the word, through baptism. What it does is it turns us around where we stop and we see Christ. We see the salvation that God gives for all people and that we have in him. And that's a good illustration because essentially that's what repentance means. It's a change. It's a turn of heart. This last week as I was thinking about how John in Luke chapter 3 talks about repentance. I thought maybe that's not the best illustration. Because so easily we can, we can be led to believe that this turning is, is something that we do, is something that we give to God. So I thought, how can I illustrate repentance in a way that will maybe is a little more clear with how the Bible talks about it, that it's not something that we even do. I thought of this. Imagine taking a deck of cards and, well, building a house of cards. Let that represent maybe the things in our life that we're sorry for, the things in our life that we need to repent of. These aren't things that are necessarily evil in the eyes of the world. In fact, maybe even most people don't see us doing these things. They're things that are status games. They're things that maybe on the outside actually impress people. They impress people maybe just a little bit, and I just made one here, but you know how difficult it is to build a house of cards. And yet notice what it does. If that's Christ and we're here, piling these things up separates us from God. To get to God, it is full of crooked roads. It's, it's full of hills and mountains. And, and what John the Baptist calls us to do is level these, make them flat, repent of what is really a house of cards, sin, something that doesn't equate to status, but ultimately is going to fall anyways and, and result in our humiliation. So what does repentance look like? It's by God's word, recognizing and, and seeing these trophies, these monuments we make out of status games in our lives and calling it what it is, sin. It's by the power of the, power of the Holy Spirit asking for forgiveness. And you see, it's, it's not really me who knocked it over. It's not really me who, who repented and, and got my sin out of the way, but... It's the Holy Spirit in me that Christ has given me. And now you get to stand before God, before his cross, and therein he gives you the salvation that is his. And do you stand here after repenting humble? Yes. But humiliated? No. Because repentance doesn't result in humiliation. It it results in God's salvation. This may be a way to think about repentance. And here's another thing that, that got me thinking about repentance this past week. My brother-in-law sent me a song. It's actually a cover of a song off of Adele's new album, Go Easy On Me. It's, it's covered by a gospel choir called the Sunday Service Collective. And they retuned the words, or, or excuse me, re, redid the words so that the song isn't about Adele's ex-lover or present lover, but... Well, it's instead, it's a song about their relationship with God. 
Go look it up on, yeah, online, Sunday Service Collective, covering Adele's Go Easy on Me. If you look on YouTube, there's thousands of views, probably 1,000 are mine because I listen to it on repeat. But here here are the lyrics that it starts out with. As I was listening to this, I thought it was perfect. I know your love flows like a river and I could wash myself in it forever. I know that there is hope in these waters. How perfect it, it talks about what scripture talks about, that in the waters of baptism, there's hope, there's forgiveness. And then I thought it even gets better because it admits that I can't bring myself to swim when I'm drowning in my sin. This is repentance. This is authentically admitting that that we can't do anything on our own, even get forgiveness by repenting because we're drowning in our sins. And then it goes on. It says, oh, Savior, please come in. Go easy on me, Father. I'm still your child. I thought that is pretty great lyrics, except for just one thing. It repeats those last three lines with gloriously beautiful tones, but it never lets you know that that plea is answered. That plea for Savior, your Savior, to come in, it's, it's actually answered. And it was, it was actually answered long before you could even, even get down on a knee and, and ask for it. It was, it was a plea that, that God, God answered long before you were even born, that he did send his Savior to come in, to come into your life, to come into human flesh, to come into the fray and all the mess and all the muck of our sinfulness, to come into this life And there, God the Father did not go easy on our Savior. No, he suffered the death. He suffered the humiliation that that we deserve. And it was all for this, that his love to you would flow like a river. That, in fact, he's not going to go easy on you. He's not going to make things easy for you. He's just going to do it all for you. And his love will come to you continually over and over again because he has done it all. He has made every valley low. He has made every crooked road straight and smooth. Why? Just so that you could see that God's salvation is yours. May God grant it for Jesus' sake. Amen.